Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Morning, Keith. Good morning. So let's break some Breaking news, news here. after you broke the coffee pot on the legislative. Oh, you're, gonna, you're not going to let me uh, no, live that one they down. They replaced it. Taxpayers' <laughs> expense. Thank you. Thank you. It's all my fault. <laughs> I know. Okay, so. Big news today, though. Okay, a big announcement here on transit funding. So let's go back to. Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, mm-hmm. who's the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council now, here he is making the case for a big injection of money into Metro Transit. Here's what he had to say. Our region is growing faster than ever. And as long as we are stuck in survival mode, our transit system will not be able to keep pace with demand and the essential service it provides. Okay, he's done a very effective job lobbying government well, here. What's very, happening? I'm told Brad West uh, deserves a big part of the credit today. So the the provincial government originally uh, threw out the figure of $250 million as the funding list of transit, with the expectation the feds, as is often the case, would be there with a matching uh, amount of money for, for a $500 million lift, similar to BC Ferries. Um, for whatever reason, um, the feds haven't. Ontario, it appears, I'm told, talking to my people, that... The Ontario government is a little distracted with what's going on in Toronto right now, which is the main transit situation, Toronto Transit Commission, with the John Tory mayoralty fiasco where he's had to resign. And so the whole transit situation in Toronto is a bit in a state of flux. So Ontario didn't get its act together to pressure the feds for matching funds for their own initiative. So Ottawa decided to take a step back. But uh, because of Brad West and the other mayors pressuring um, the provincial government, the funding today from the finance ministry and Rob Fleming, the transportation minister, will be making this announcement with Brad West and Premier David Eby, oh, $479 million, one-time funding out of the surplus this year uh, to meet, as Brad West just pointed out, growing demand in places like uh, Surrey, Langley, and the Tri-Cities. So more buses, more SkyTrain cars. And I'm told also uh, basically eliminating the prospect of potential layoffs that might have occurred with some budget pressures in TransLink. So this is a huge lift for uh, transportation. Metro okay, $479 million up from $250 million, and you're going to have the, the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council there, Brad West, on hand for the mm-hmm. announcement. So clearly he's going to be He's going to be happy. happy. Okay. And I think he's going to take a lot of the credit um, yeah. in the mayors. You but, know, it they... one, but it's just one-time funding, though. This is not like annual continual funding, though. Not in, in this situation, no. But there's always the prospect that province can hand more money over to TransLink. It happens from time to time. So, yeah. But this is out of the surplus. Probably the last payment out of the surplus. We've seen... Um, Almost three billion dollars spent on a billion dollars for municipalities, half a billion dollars for this housing fund, yep. another half billion for BC ferries, one hundred eleven million dollars for agriculture, food security, and the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, especially after they made that big announcement for BC ferries, the Metro Transit ask was kind of glaring, oh, yeah. glaringly obvious that they you know, needed. You and I speculated for last oh, for a couple of weeks now it would be about a half billion dollars, and sure enough, it's coming just shy of that. Right, right. So this means that, like you said, more buses is the big was the big one that Brad West. I'm talking to him about. They wanted more buses, particularly the in the fastest growing regions such as Langley, Surrey, yeah. and the Tri Cities area. Yeah, okay. and more SkyTrain cars too, I believe. Okay, so that's coming this afternoon. So we're breaking some news there on that. Let's talk about yesterday. Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, announcing new initiative on repeat offenders. So the revolving door justice system that we have. We just had a I had a discussion here off the bat about the situation in Nanaimo, where a local businessman was shot. Yeah. After he went down to a homeless encampment to try and get 
some stolen property back. So not a, not a action I would advocate many people taking. Yeah, well, I, I spoke to the mayor about that too, Leonard Krogh, who said he does not encourage this kind of vigilante justice. No. But people had been warning, like you know, people are getting fed up. Not only in Nanaimo, but lots of other cities, mm-hmm. and you're going to start people taking taking the law into their own hands, which I don't encourage either. Not and now this poor that. guy's in a coma in the hospital. So the government keeps saying, "Well, we're responding. We're responding to the situation." Here is Mike Farnworth yesterday about chronic repeat offenders. Have a listen. They will consult and monitor cases continuously throughout the justice system, Art, from investigation and charge assessment through bail trial, or plea sentencing to enhanced release planning that includes mental health services and ongoing community supervision. Your thoughts? So $25 million over three years, not just this year, uh, to hire or reassign 21 Crown Counsel, 21 other uh, prosecution service professionals to be on these dedicated prosecution teams that are going to be deal with repeat violent offenders. Four full-time BC corrections officials, nine correctional supervisors, nine probation officers. Um, not clear whether we're talking about reassigning existing staff oh. or whether we're talking about hiring additional staff. And there's a critical difference because we've seen in all sorts of announcements, uh, in all sorts of sectors, human resource issues are critical. Uh, the government announced some time ago to hire something like two or three hundred security officers in, in health facilities. Right, and because think, there were so many assaults happening in hospitals on nurses. I think only a handful have been have been hired. I yeah. mean, we're constantly doing stories on uh, ferry sailings being cancelled because there's a lack of ferry staff. Yeah. Uh, there is a lack of staff in all sorts of sectors. So we'll see if this. I mean, this is over three years. The BC Liberals' chief criticism in this is that it's not going to happen. It's not going to solve anything overnight. It's not right. going to have an immediate impact. It's going to take some time for the impact to be felt. But uh, another reminder, human resource issues, it's one thing to say we're going to hire someone or we're going to reassign someone. If you don't have the existing bodies, tapping into that labor pool is challenging. Okay, we've seen a series of announcements on this file this week. We had that one yesterday. Earlier in the week, we had the deal with Ottawa. Ottawa promising to rewrite the criminal code here on violent repeat offenders. So this is pressure that's been building up on the government. We see the mayhem that's happening in a lot of uh, cities in our province. And Mm -hmm. the Liberals, you know, have been pointing out that, look, we've been asking for this for a long time. Like, what has taken so long? Here is Liberal MLA, Eleanor Sturko, former police officer. Have a listen. We've known that this has been an issue for a, a number of years. In fact, BC Urban Mayors brought this to David Eady and to Mike Farnworth in December of 2021. So imagine the progress that could have already been made if they would have taken action when they first learned about this problem instead of, first of all, denying that the problem even existed and failing to act for so long. I'm not sure they denied the problem existed. Well, but, the, the head know. of criminal justice did. He wrote that op-ed piece where he said the crime rate's down, yeah. um, which is true. But violent crime is up. And there was, a, there was a rejoinder to that saying, wait a minute, no, violent crime is actually up yeah. significantly. Um, overall crime, because as we talked before, in the pandemic, people were staying home, so there were fewer B&Es. Yeah. Uh, there were fewer car thefts and damage to vehicles because people were driving less, keeping the cars in the driveway rather than on the street because they're working from home. But the, the number of violent crimes, these unprovoked assaults, is up alarmingly. So there was a sense of denial there for some time. Well, time. yeah, now that you mention it, I, I recall speaking to some officials who said that even during this, this review, the government uh, ordered after the B.C. big city mayors had been complaining mm-hmm. about this, that there had been pushback internally. Like when people were saying, why don't we keep these violent offenders locked up instead of putting them back on the street? 
And people in the ministry and the justice system are going, whoa, 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 we can't do that. We've got to mm-hmm. let people out. Yeah, and again, their, their their argument was that they were following BC Supreme Court decisions right. and federal law. So it yeah. was interesting. There was a uh, the federal justice minister did a one eighty in the meetings with the uh, um, provincial justice ministers uh, last week. He went in that meeting saying, "There's no need for change. Everything's fine. The legislation's working." Comes out and says, "No, he agrees with the provincial minister saying, no, the criminal code has to be rewritten.' Now he says it could be done as early as this spring. We'll see." That's, you know, changing the criminal code can be a laborious process. Yeah. So, again, the, the timing of all this is, is you know, questionable. It's, I don't suspect there's going to be an immediate impact on any front. What about mental health institutions like reopening Riverview and Leonard Krogh, who's the mayor of Nanaimo, where we just had this guy shot outside this homeless encampment on the weekend, brought that up with mm-hmm. me again this morning. Why don't we have an, a re- effectively reopen Riverview? Because people are mentally ill on the streets. They need to be treated. Yeah, and that that's a conversation that just started again. So you had Kevin Falcon is advocating that. David Eby, is, uh, again, when he was running to be the leader of the NDP, brought up the uh, bringing back involuntary care. So this is starting to happen. Whether it's Riverview or a Riverview-like facility yeah. uh, is likely to happen down the road. But again, this is it's taking some time to to enact these measures, whether it's criminal code amendments, whether it's the hiring or redeployment of crowns, or whether it's reopening mental health institutions. Okay, let's talk about the big LNG announcement yesterday. So this is the first Indigenous-led LNG project. It's the green light. Yeah, Cedar LNG, uh, headed up by the Heisla First Nation. This is a huge uh, win for for Heisla. This is a huge economic development for them. The revenue stream to that that nation is significant. It was first, you know, Ellis Ross, the Skeena MLA for the BC Liberals, is a guy as the former chief counselor there. Uh, Van Chief started this up a number of years ago. Um, he began negotiations. Crystal Smith is the current uh, chief there, is bringing it home. So this is a, a big uh, a big development. Now, it's interesting, in yesterday's announcement, all the projects that have passed the environmental assessment are ex- exempt from these new plans going forward, these caps and, and stuff. This is for emissions, like yes. greenhouse gas emissions. So LNG Canada is already through the process. Yeah, that's the big one. That's that's a huge one. So that's, you know, that's no longer part of this. Wood fiber's through the process. Now cedar is. Nishka is close. We'll see what happens with their project. Um, So the other half of this was uh, a cap and changing um, some of the emission standards for the oil and gas sector. So it was interesting yesterday. Some environmental groups put out news release saying this is a great thing, big win. Others were critical because an LNG project has been approved. Uh, so it's uh, glass half full, glass half empty for some groups. Okay, very unique in that this is an Indigenous-led natural gas project, but there continues to be divisions among First Nations leaders. So let's listen to Namox here, who is Hereditary Chief of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Have a listen. We resist because we're new, we know we're doing the right thing for everybody. They're only looking at the dollar value and not the long-term human cost here. So we continue to have... Notably, some of the hereditary chiefs in the Wet'suwet'en continue to oppose the coastal gasoline pipeline. It appears the vast majority of First Nations up there support these projects. The Heisler First Nations, Nishka First Nations, there are a number of First Nations that are partners in the LNG Canada project. There are some uh, small number of hereditary chiefs in the Wet'suwet'en who oppose it, but they are in the minority. All right, it's Baldry's Beat. Let's go right to your phone calls here. George in Nanaimo. Hi, George, go ahead. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, it's all well and good for the mayor 
and the police to say, don't take the law into your own hands. But what are we supposed to do? Every day, we've got hordes of rampaging zombies running everywhere, stealing everything. I watched a police car yesterday drive right past a guy pushing a shopping cart with a giant screen television, and it obviously stolen. Didn't even bother stopping. We see this stuff all the time here. You know, but they don't enforce mm-hmm. the little laws. It makes these guys bolder and bolder. We've now had people fatally stabbed in our city this year, and now they have guns. So at what point are we supposed to just sit there and do nothing while our entire downtown core is being hollowed out? Thank you, George. Well, again, I would not encourage you to wade into some of this. You are running a risk to your personal safety to confront People, I've seen, we've seen this in Victoria, we've seen this in Vancouver, camps where there can be weapons in these places, and you run a risk if you try to go in there. Well, look at this poor guy in Nanaimo. Yeah. I mean, this guy is running a, a little auto repair shop, and he's now in an induced coma after being shot in the stomach. So, But going in there trying to retrieve stuff, you, right. you do run a risk. And yeah. you know, We had a homeless encampment here next to the courthouse yeah. for a number of months, well, well more than a year. And it became not only a threatening place, but in terms of the news media, a lot of us just didn't want to go anywhere near that place because there was threats and threats of violence. So yeah. it is a dangerous situation. I'm not saying it's tolerable, but be careful. Do like I can, under, I can understand the frustration. Like I asked one of the guys this morning in Nanaimo, why didn't you, if he, and he said, we knew our stuff was down there because we, the, we saw the tools, we saw the stuff that had been stolen from this garage. So we went to get it back. And why didn't you phone the police if you knew it was there? Is it because the police don't show up? They yeah. don't respond. They're too busy. Yeah. No, it's so, uh, it, it, Nanaimo seems to be in, not an entirely unique situation, but a particularly dangerous situation. Oh, yeah. Right it's bad. It's a bad one. It's bad. Carl on the line in Nanaimo. Hi, Carl. Go ahead. I, I live on Protection Island, so I'm, my downtown is right across the water. Anytime I go to, into town, I'm in downtown. And, you know, years ago, I took part in writing the, the uh, feasibility study for the Regional Independent Living Center. And the government loved that information because it showed them how much money they could save by shutting down the institutions. Problem was, is that's all they did. They didn't have any proper follow-up. And a lot of those people ended up at the mercy of the existing criminality that was out there. And it's been exacerbated over this time. This problem took 15 years or more to get to this point. And it's going to take yeah. almost equally as long to cure it. And, and I think that that's what people have to realize. There's no easy answer. Locking up people and, and is not necessarily going to solve the problem. You know, and you. We, need to, we need to deal with the other underlying issues. And that's what's never been dealt with. Thanks for the call. Yeah, so governments of all stripes have historically willingly abandoned certain services um, but not reestablishing them on the other end. So you saw in the 1990s we had this thing closer to home. Yeah, which yeah. is to take health care out of hospitals, right? get people away from acute care hospitals, which is fine. But they didn't establish the home support. You know, you're going to have to get health care somewhere, and the, and the goal was to get it closer to home. Well, the closer to home aspect was never really developed. And what you left, was, left in the 90s was a reduced number of acute care beds and a reduced number of doctors, and that led to a crisis. Same with shutting down Riverview. Exactly. There was a lot of popular support for shutting down these institutions at the time. But, but there wasn't a transfer of services. Exactly. There wasn't the corresponding lift in services on the front yeah. lines. 